This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn, and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm gonna choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. And we are live. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Insight Live. I'm with my partner in crime, Brendan Kay from Master Talk. As promised, today we're going to talk about one of, it might be his favorite company, but at least one of his favorite companies, Airbnb, founded in 2008. And we're going to learn the whole story from start to finish and really dissect what they did to create the juggernaut that exists today. Obviously, you have to be living in a cave to not know what Airbnb is, but it's still a relatively new company. It's less than 15 years old, yet it's grown remarkably, and the story is fascinating. So let's start with this, brother. Why is this a company that you've studied so closely? Ooh, that's an interesting way to start this. You know, the way I think about this, Billy, is I'm always fascinated by people who are building the future. And what's super fascinating about Airbnb is they really pioneered this idea is of how do we share homes with each other in a way that is scalable. So to your point, like we talked about yesterday, this home sharing idea existed for centuries before Airbnb exists as a platform. In my culture, this is very normal. We go to somebody's house. Hell, when I go to your house, I'm not going to be renting a hotel. I'm going to be staying at your house. As long as I don't have to pay a $10,000 a day to stay in LA. <laughs> but the point is, is you know, the concept of home sharing you know, lasted a long time. It's just most of the home sharing we do as, as a society is with people we know, like, and trust for a long period of time. So me and you have known each other for a long time. Families do this a lot, close relatives, cousins, but never strangers that we've never had an interaction with. That yeah. happens very rarely, mostly in the couch surfing industry. For those who don't know what couch surfing is, it's a community where when people are traveling, you can put your home, it's like a movement. And then in exchange, it's, there's kind of like an unwritten contract is that the person who does the couch surfing brings them a gift, like a bottle of wine or food. And the people who open their homes to that mostly do it for a good conversation. They usually live alone or they just like interacting with cool human beings. So it wasn't something that was popular. It was very, you know, culty. It wasn't something that was adopted by the masses because of the stigma. You know, we hear it all the time. Our parents, I'm sure, gave you the same advice. Hey, don't talk to strangers. Mm. Don't get in cars with strangers. Right. Don't pick up hitchhikers. Right. And it's super fascinating. But when people give you that advice, because 90 to 95 percent, if not more, of all human beings are well-intentioned. So it's fascinating that you always hear this advice, 
even if most kidnappings don't even come from strangers. Anyways, that's a whole other thing for another day. But <laughs> I can of- change the title, Brendan's <laughs> Thoughts on Kidnapping. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan's Thoughts on Kidnapping, absolutely. So it's why I find Airbnb as a company so interesting is they took such a controversial idea and flipped it on its head. Similar to online dating, where in the late 90s, if you're you're online dating, it's like crazy. And mm. they made it normal. A lot of companies like OkCupid, like Match.com with Tinder and a lot of these apps, they really made it normal. They normalized online dating. A lot of people actually find their loved ones in that way. So I just love companies and founders who have a very unique insight on the market that most people don't think is true, that ends up being true in the future. So I'm always fascinated by companies like that. And Brian's, Joe's, and Nathan's is definitely an interesting story with Airbnb. It totally is. And to your point, it's not a new concept entirely, but they normalized it. They made it more accessible and something that virtually everyone would feel comfortable doing. What did they do to do that. How did they do that? Because actually it's not just that there was Airbnbs. I'm pretty sure VRBO was, was around before them and, and others I'm sure too. What did they do differently that set them apart? And one thing for those who don't know, it started as literally the full name of the company was Air Bed and Breakfast, which is why it's Airbnb. That was their first.com, Air Bed and Breakfast. So they obviously switched the name about a year in. So I mean, it's not just the name, though. What did they do right to make it so accessible for all of us? It's a great question, man. The way I think about it, my interpretation of their success is the unique edge that they had. It's very unique. You don't see a lot of founding teams who have this, is their founders were designers by trade. So most of the time when you see successful startups and CEOs, most of them are technical. They have computer science backgrounds. They worked in software But Brian and Joe actually went to the Rhode Island School of Design. Like they were designers by trade. That's what they did. And they went to work in in design. If you had asked Brian what he wanted to do in life, he said he wanted to work at Disney, right? That's what he wanted to do. But Nathan, on the other hand, was one of the best software engineers at the time. And they knew each other. I think it's they met through a mutual friend or something. But basically, the advantage that the founding team had is they really looked at travel from a design perspective. What does that mean? So something like a VRBO, at least at the time, was more, okay, we're like a listing site, kind of like Craigslist. Okay, Billy, list your home if you want. Put your home there, and we make a margin on the marketplace. But what they didn't think about, the Airbnb did, is how do we get more people on the platform at scale? What leads to someone's decision to A, put their home up, And also B, from the other perspective as well, somebody to pay to trust that. And a big piece of Airbnb's success within that design process, and I'll break it down because there's a lot of layers there, is this idea of trust. Airbnb from the get-go had a massive trust team. The head of the trust, Brian Armstrong, actually ended up building Coinbase a few years later that obviously exited a Mm. huge, huge, huge multiple. But what Airbnb understood is that for the average human being to use the service, they really needed to trust the system, whereas with VRBA, they didn't think that far. So the idea here that I really want to punch is that they were customer-obsessed from day one. There's this interesting story when they joined Y Combinator. Well, I'm skipping a bit ahead. But basically, when they joined one of the fastest accelerators in the world at the time, the founder literally said, hey, go out to New York and meet your customers. And mm-hmm. they had dinner with hosts across the world. So I think what really made the difference is they understood their customer 100 times better than anyone else. Right. They actually got $20,000 from Y Combinator. And instead of putting that into the website, they took that money and they traveled to New York, to your point, to meet with their customers. And such a brilliant decision. Obviously, hindsight is 2020. So now we can look back and say it was brilliant at the time. I'm sure there was maybe they were second guessing. Should we put this here? Should we put this there? But to your point, understanding what's going to be most important for the customer and that trust piece is critical. So I just looked it up really quickly and VRBO was founded in 1995. And I just thought to myself, you know, my bachelor party was in 2008 and we got a, you know, VRBO in Mexico for my bachelor party Wow! and, you know, had 
Airbnb been around, there's a great likelihood we would have used that. I mean, at this point, I think it's almost default to them. Actually, I would guess that VRBO has been helped by Airbnb because now there's, it's like the Lyft Uber thing. And there's just another, it just brings more familiarity to this concept and therefore more people use it. But what else goes into it? Because I wonder, does branding, does marketing, does virality and sharing it play into this? What happened early on that allowed them to get some momentum? Because they had clearly, you know, they caught the attention of Y Combinator. That was the very first thing that happened in terms of getting some attention from people that could put some resources behind the company. But it didn't stop there. I think $13 billion in overall, you know, raising just so much money throughout the years, through all this, the series that they had. And so it's interesting to see how it's evolved. What did they do right from either a marketing, branding, or other perspective? Yeah, and there's, there's so many great things there to your question. But let's start the first one, which is the jockey. You know, Gary Vee says this best. Everyone's right on the thesis, but mm-hmm. only one of the jockeys are going to make it big. So let's take, we, we take the founders of VRBA that transparently I haven't done much studying on. What we can learn from that experience is you can still be a successful entrepreneur without having a huge, grandiose vision for how the world is. And grandiose big visions are so important in the context of big startups, because honestly, it's either big, go big or go home. And in the case with VRBO, they weren't thinking big enough. It was more around, okay, this is a listing place. We're not going to try and get the masses on this thing. It's going to be a small service. We're going to focus on the crazy people like Billy who want to book a VRBO in Mexico. Sure, we'll just service him. But the other 99 people, yeah, we just don't need them. They don't, they don't need this service. <laughs> it's probably not for them. But Brian from the get-go... His thought process was, and Joe's and Nathan's, whenever I say Brian, I always imply all three of them. From the beginning, their dream with Airbnb was to get everyone to use it. And the reason is because they weren't crazy kooks like you booking VRBOs, right? They were just normal folks in San Francisco. And then one day they realized that the the hotels were all booked and they needed to pay their rent. So they said, why don't, and then Joe had a crazy idea of just renting out their house for like a day. And then three people booked on Craigslist or was a Facebook group or something like that. Yeah, there's a technology conference or something. And it was, it was yeah. just so so busy in, in the Bay Area. So it's just like, okay, now you it's supply and demand. And they were just capitalizing on this. Carry on. Correct. And, and it was the experience that they had hosting these three people that changed their life. They're still friends with most of those people, I believe, on record. And from that experience, they said, wow, everyone should experience this. It wasn't even about the accommodation, Billy. That's why the original idea was around having breakfast with the hosts because it was the relationship mm-hmm. that we were building with the people in the home. Of course, the idea evolved since a lot of people just don't want to stick around and talk to people, which is fair. But the idea, the core essence of Airbnb from the get-go was how do we design this so that everyone can use it? So the first piece that was different with Airbnb was they had just had a bigger vision. Like one person can have a vision to start a business and scale a coaching business, you know, have 10 clients, whatever. And another one could say, how do I impact a billion lives? So it's the same thing with Airbnb. They just had a bigger vision. So they fought bigger, they played bigger, and their thought process was geared towards it. That's number one. Number two is this idea of timing. So of course, I'm not going to lie when I say 2009 was probably the best time for Airbnb to start their business. A lot of people are listening right now might think, why is 2009 the best time to start a business? Isn't that when the global recession was? And yes, that is correct. The global recession was definitely bad for a lot of industries, but for Airbnb it was amazing. And I'll tell you why. Hosts were very open to putting their homes on Airbnb because they needed to make ends meet. A lot of them lost their jobs. So they were like, okay, let's just be host for Airbnb. Let's see what happened. Because what's interesting about Airbnb, Billy, especially today, Airbnb does not have a demand problem. There's a lot of people who want to stay at Airbnbs. Airbnb has a supply problem. Not a lot of people want to be hosts. So during the last recession to a decade ago, because Airbnb started right at that inflection point, a lot of people signed up as hosts because they wanted to make some money, some extra cash. And that's what led to the big piece. And then going back to the third point around customer inception, let me give an example that really shows you how obsessed they were. Because it's at a level that you really need an example to get. 
So they were having a dinner with one of their hosts, one of their first ever super hosts in New York. They were like, hey, why do you think most people aren't booking? And the guy said, well, you know what, Joe and Brian, my pictures don't really look that great. Because I don't really have money for a professional photographer, and I'm sure that would get me a lot more listings. And then Joe and Brian just went, oh, that's a really good idea. So they took out a camera and said, hey, look, we're your professional photographers. They started taking professional photographer photos of all of the listings in New York. They literally went house to house to house, literally, and took pictures. And a lot more people started booking those rooms. So it's just a one detail, one example of how crazy this team was. Mm. It's such a great point. And I also love the perspective and thought that it was the right time for the same reason. When I left Tesla, I didn't have a job, but I had a Tesla. Might as well start turrowing it out. I'm not going to lie. It didn't hurt that I made a few grand a month by turrowing out my Model X. It was easy money. All I had to do was say bye to my Tesla for a couple of days. And all of a sudden, you know, a few hundred to a few thousand dollars end up in my bank because somebody else needed a car while they were in LA. So it was the right time for me. If I was working and didn't need money at that point, it probably wouldn't have been as likely that I would throw it out. The other piece is really fundamental, which is being closely tethered to what the customer's pain points are. I think that's a critical piece. If somebody is feeling like they are not able to get the results they want, figure out what's the cause and then find a solution. In this case, it was taking nice photos for each each house. By the way, on the breakfast piece, when you come and you stay on the couch right here, you get breakfast. Whoa. It might be ramen, but you do get breakfast. See, donuts are reserved for evening. I don't, I'm not a morning donut guy. We'll do like a midnight run to get donuts. That's why I'm on a bit of a diet now, just in preparation for you arriving so we could have some donuts. It's donuts for late night snack and then ramen for breakfast. We got to figure out the rest, but at least we know that. So- <laughs> Be careful, man. If you advertise it too much, you'll have a waiting list of people wanting to stay on your couch. Hey, maybe this is the beginning of a new business, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So obviously we've touched on a few things. There was like any business, there's going to be road bumps. Clearly a major road bump happened in 2020 where basically no one was going anywhere. And I think it was like 90, at one point it was like 96% of their, what were their hosts were evaporated. So it was a massive, massive, they had to lay off like 1900 people, 25% of their employees. It was not an easy time. And not only that, but they had to take care of their hosts. And one thing that really impressed me is that they put $250 million to their hosts to compensate them for all the cancellations that they got. So I thought that was a really nice thing. And to your point, we talked before, you said they had to do that. It was the right thing to do. But let's go back earlier than that. What were some of the early speed bumps, obstacles, or things that got in their way and how did they overcome them? Yeah. So lots of speed bumps along the way. I would say one in particular that I can remember very fondly as I was reading the book on Airbnb is the Doppelganger Brothers. So the Doppelganger Brothers are a group of people in Europe. I'm not making this stuff up. I I might not get the name exactly correctly, but basically what they do is whenever they see a great idea in America, they copy the idea scale it in Europe, and then force the company in the U.S. to buy them out at a huge multiple, or else they have big competition in Europe. So they did that with Airbnb. And it was a really difficult decision on whether or not Brian should buy them out or just flat out compete against them. And he chose to compete, and he won, which is super interesting. But at the time... (laughs) Do you know the name of that company? It was called... I don't know the name of the company. I just know they're like a group of brothers in Europe, and this is what they do. They copied Groupon and then sold their opera. That's how they make their money. I don't know why they do this, but hey, I mean, it's profitable, and they compete. It's their thesis. Copy yeah. what works, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. sell it to the people that start, came up with the idea to begin with. So. Yeah, literally. That's one way of putting it for sure. <laughs> so Brian didn't have a lot of money back then. So he had to make a tough call. Do we just go to Europe and compete with these guys or do we just buy them out? And 50% of the people around him told him to buy. And the other 50% said, don't buy it, just compete against them. And it was tough. You know, it's tough in those decisions as a founder. And this brings us to the next point, having a strong point of view on where you want the business to go. That's why founder-led companies do so well. I mean, Elon Musk's Tesla, 
subreddit SpaceX, Peter Thiel's PayPal, Jeff Bezos's Amazon. There's a magic when the founder of the company is still leading it mm-hmm. because they're the one who started it. They're the one who had that initial idea, that flame, that point of view. So Brian just said, look, it's very difficult to copy Airbnb's model because Airbnb is a lot more than just a classified ads website. There's trust built in. There's a lot of intricacies of the product built in, like the pictures, the star ratings, the customer service. So they went in with that confidence and they completely wrecked the clones. Took a few years, but the clones eventually drew the right flag because they weren't as passionate about the business because the Airbnb is not an easy business, right? The more it scales, there's going to be a lot more accidents, a lot more bad stuff happening. And you have to deal with all that crisis management pretty much on a daily basis today, probably Mm. with millions of people staying in their homes, in people's homes now. It's a huge business, but it's also huge crisis management as well. So I'm sure the doppelganger brothers kind of just defaulted and that's what (laughs) happened. (laughs) Well, you know, it's like this, they're disrupting multiple industries, not least of which is hotels. And it's much like Uber with taxis. I know in New York, I know there was legislation put in place and there was heavy fines put on Airbnb. The now ex-governor was fining them left and right. And I'm sure he had the support of the hotels to do so because ultimately they're they're taking bread off the table of the, the hotel industry. So what do you know about that? How do they overcome things like that. When you're going up, it's almost like David versus Goliath, right? There's these, it's, it's, I came from the solar business. So when we're selling solar, we're disrupting the energy business, electricity. This is a, you know, hundred plus year old business. There's all sorts of infrastructure that's in place and a lot of money behind getting power to your house. Now we're all of a sudden giving people a totally new way to get electricity, a better way, a cleaner way, a cheaper way. But guess what? Our competitor is not other solar companies, it's the electricity company because they don't want us to take their business, much like a hotel doesn't want Airbnb to take their business. So how has Airbnb navigated those waters? Very interesting question, man. There's definitely a lot to say about the regular tour. I was just doing a quick Google search so to make sure I got his name right. So I actually watched an hour talk on this a few years ago. He's no longer the head of legal at Airbnb. But now it's Rich Bayer. But before that, it was a guy named Chris Lehan, who was helping a lot of the legal for the Obama administration in the in back in the day. And how he explained it is he told Brian very early, and Melinda, Melinda as well did that as well, with the ex-COO of Airbnb. She helped Belinda, sorry, not Melinda. And she helped uh, Mark Cuban in the during broadcast.com when he built broadcast and sold it mm-hmm. to Yahoo for a few billion dollars. She was also their legal advisor. So what she was telling him and what Chris was telling Brian to do very early in the business is to shake hands with the government officials early. Because a lot of these government officials, as you guys have probably seen by the from the tech hearings, a lot of these people don't even know what the internet is. It's kind of freaky when you see some of the people who are in power don't even understand how social media work. It's kind of mind-boggling when you saw how Mark Zuckerberg was being testified in court. Story for another day. But it leads to a bigger idea that if you want to be successful in this regulatory environment, you need to shake hands with politicians a lot faster, a lot earlier, so that they don't see you as just a threat. And there's still, by the way, there's still cities today that he's still struggling with. Like New York's a good example of that. Barcelona in Spain. These are some cities where the government isn't really keen to having Airbnb there. They don't really like it. But what Chris has said is collaboration is key. Like Airbnb does not like to, so people know this, they don't just go into cities like Uber did and just ransack the village and go screw the government, screw everyone. Let's just do, that's how Airbnb operated. So a lot of the arguments against Airbnb is that it inflates housing prices and rental prices. Because if there's too many people using Airbnb, too many tourists, well, people who are living in that city have to pay higher rent, which isn't necessarily true in my view. And let me explain why. If you do this at the extreme and Airbnb just does this like crazy, then yes, it could definitely lead to those dangers. But what Chris said in that video is he said, that's why it was so important for us to get that relationship with the government early, because we work with the government to figure out what laws we can put in place. So for example, in certain parts of the world, Airbnb has a relationship with the government where 
hosts cannot host for a certain number of days on Airbnb. So let's say during the year, they could only host 60 days out of the 365 to prevent housing price increases. So there's a lot of collaboration that's happening between these governments. And that's what Airbnb did really well versus Uber, where they kind of just attacked everybody all at once, aggressively expanded. And a lot of people started banning Uber and it led to a lot of chaos. But in Airbnb's case, I felt they were really smart about it. I think the only way they're going to get to New York at this point and Barcelona is to wait for the old officials to just and wait for mm. the young people to take over in office. Yeah, man, I'll tell you what, I lived in Venice Beach and I had a house that was very near the water and my street was a walk street and one by one, it seemed like every house on the street became an Airbnb property. And I'll be honest, I do, I don't know if it had a direct, I mean, the, the prices were going up no matter what, but it, it did something. And I, this is an interesting piece is it changed the neighborhood. And so I think that's the other thing that, that plays into this, that we all have to be cognizant of and aware of is when somebody doesn't own a house, they're going to tr either treat it different, act different, but it also is interesting too, right? You got different people from all over the world. So there's, I look at it from a, you know, the positive perspective, but I know some people in my neighborhood weren't as happy that there was this revolving door of people. I mean, not to get super macabre, but there was actually somebody that stayed in Airbnb across the alley from me and somebody ended up passing away in a jacuzzi. It's like when random things happen like that, it's super scary. So obviously these are things that a company like Airbnb has to be aware of. But for somebody listening right now who maybe is like, okay, I don't have a big giant unicorn style startup, but I do have a startup or I do have a company. What are some principles? We've already mentioned some of them. What are some principles that could apply across the board that Airbnb does really well, which you talked about design. You talked about getting to know the customers and serving your customers. These are like foundational things that I think are really, really important. You talk about not waiting and being reactive when it comes to legal issues, being proactive and shaking hands before there's a problem so you can actually coordinate and collaborate with the powers that be. What are some other best practices that we could apply as business owners, as startup founders, that we could learn from Airbnb? Yeah, I think the first one is make a lot of noise without making a lot of noise. So what does that mean? That means... Don't be shy to be loud on your marketing. Don't be shy to tell people who you are, what your vision is, what you're trying to accomplish. But at the same time, don't step on your competitor's shoes. And I think a lot of people make this mistake where when it's David versus Goliath, which most startups are David trying to beat Goliath, they always go, okay, this is who we are and we're better than Goliath. Goliath sucks. And they go, blah, 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 blah. That's not how I think the game should play. And Airbnb actually made this mistake early and they changed their languaging later. You know, Brian Chesky has this famous uh, notepad that just says hotels suck. But uh, today he's, he's changed up his flavor. <laughs> he's changed up his flavor. Because he realized it doesn't help to talk about your enemies in a bad light. It never helps. Never. I mean, I was just, as you know, I just interviewed Bob Berg and he's got a whole section of his book, Adversaries into Allies. And he, he actually talks about the huge, huge, huge pothole of talking about your competition in a negative light. Talk about, the, either don't talk about them or talk about them as positively as you can without, you know, you don't need to gloat about them, but don't, don't ever talk poorly about your competition. So yeah, I know I'm, I'm so, I'm so with you on that. Absolutely. Cause it just makes you look bad, right? People perceive you in the wrong way and people know about you and they want you to lose. That's bad. Don't create enemies. Yeah. On the other hand, if the people around you all want you to succeed, but by the time you do become Goliath, the other, your competitors won't even see you pass by and you'll already beat them. And that's the key. That was probably the first principle I learned from Airbnb. It's just focus on the customer. I got that from Amazon too. Focus on the customer. Focus on who you're trying to serve. Focus on their experience. Put all your marketing around those people. Don't focus on anyone else and you'll win. That's the first piece. The second piece is the design process. And Brian Chesky calls this the seven-star experience. One thing that he prides himself on is always being creative and imagining how 
to create all of these fantastic experiences. So he has this great quote in, in his Masters of Scale episode. So it sounds something like this. Well, what does a five-star experience look like? I'm quoting him now. A five-star experience looks like, okay, I come to Billy's house. Billy greets me at the door. I get to meet his wife, meet his little dogs and cats, have a great time. Billy shows me around the city. I get to meet a lot of his friends. I hit a night party. It's a lot of fun. And he drives me back to the airport and buys me lunch. Five-star experience. Wow, that's amazing. But we challenge us to do is what does a seven-star experience look like? So seven-star experience is Brendan gets off of the airplane. There's a limousine waiting for Brendan at this airplane. Brendan gets in the limousine. It's Billy as the little driver here next to Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> and Jennifer Lopez is a bouquet of roses for me. And then we drive to the Airbnb that's this big castle and I get to dance with Justin Bieber have amazing ramen built by one of the top chefs in Japanese you get the idea even if this experience is not profitable for Airbnb to deliver at 80 bucks a day or zero bucks a day in my case by imagining that better experience for your customer it gives you fun ideas on how to innovate for them I'll give you an example from my playbook that I applied when looking at people like Brian Chesky and Disney are great examples of people who really create those seven-star experiences for their consumers, is I started coaching my executives as kids. Not because it's super profitable for me, but because it's a way for me to build a relationship with my client in a way that's extremely unique, where I say hi to them and I know their kid because I coach their kid too. So all of us can really challenge ourselves to rethink that client experience because trust me, even if you're delivering the same bloody service, if you just do better and over deliver on those little innovative things, you'll go very far. And Zappos is probably the best example of that. They just sell shoes and -hmm. they sold their company for billions of dollars to Amazon. That's probably the other big lesson. Well, the other thing that Zappos does is they think about the employee experience, much like Southwest. And you look at these companies and you study them. Sometimes they put their employee first because they know if they put their employee first, their employee will put the customer first. And if they put the customer first, then the stakeholders, shareholders are taken care of as well. And it's a fundamental approach to having happy employees often equates to happy everything else. Let me throw there, because I, I want to stay on this for a second, just to show you how Brian was obsessed with culture, because you just mentioned employee experience. That's super important. Brian was so obsessed with Zappos' culture that he specifically got investment from Sequoia Capital, where mm-hmm. Alfred Lin is one of the one of his board members and one of the partners at Sequoia. But a lot of people on this call don't do not know who Alfred Lin is. Alfred Lin was one of the co-founders of Zappos with Tony Shea. So he was so obsessed with culture and the employee experience was probably the third thing we can learn. Even when he laid off the employees during COVID, he did it in the right way. Mm-hmm. He cut deep, he cut fast, and he gave them super generous severance packages. He kept their health insurance for the rest of the year and helped them all find jobs. That was probably the best showing I've ever seen from a CEO during the pandemic. But to your point, he was so obsessed with employee experience and all of the best companies that you talked about, Southwest, Amazon, etc. They did it so well. I would say Brian even took it further because he was like, you know what? I want to be so good at culture that I need someone who does it better than me on my board. And that's how he got Alfred to get to mm. be on his board of directors. Who else did he study? What other companies, founders? Do you know if anyone else that stands out? that either Brian or one of the other co-founders modeled? Because that's always fascinating to me to think about who came before, who they learned from, because now we're learning from them, but who do they learn from? Oh, bunch, bunch, bunch of people. So let's go through a couple of names. One is Alfred Lin, who's once again, the CFO of Zappos, the ex-CFO. He was a mastermind on culture. He helped them with culture. Second was Jeff Jordan. He was one of the top growth executives at eBay. He really understood marketplace startups a lot. Not a lot of marketplaces do well at the billion-dollar level. They don't really become unicorns. So eBay was probably one of the other few examples that have had much success. So Brian really wanted Jeff on his board. So he got, I believe Jeff Jordan was, don't quote me on this, but I believe he's from Andreessen Horowitz. So that's how he got him on his board. Jeff is the second person. Third one is, of course, Reid Hoffman. How do you scale networks? How do you scale relationships? And he got an investment from him. He's a partner at Greylock Partners. Mm -hmm. So he got an investment check from them. 
those are just a couple of names that come to mind right now. Another one as well is Angela Ahrens. So Angela Ahrens is the CEO of Burberry. So for those who don't know, Burberry is this fashion brand in the UK. She was masterful. She used to be um, the senior vice president of Apple in the design space. She was like managing a lot of their their team there. And they got her to be a, to sit on their, their BOD as well. So she's awesome. Another one is uh, Kenneth Cheneau. So Kenneth Cheneau is one of the was the CEO of American Express for the last 30 to 40 years. Extremely successful guy. One of the few black CEOs as well. Fortune 500 companies. Warren Buffett called him one of the top CEOs of his generation. So that says a lot given how old Warren Buffett is. So Kenneth sits on the board of Airbnb and Facebook. So Kenneth's pretty impressive as well. Man, you missed uh, Ashton Kutcher. Uh, he was an early oh, investor. Yeah, he was. <laughs> I don't think he added much value besides uh, brand rec- recognition. I could be wrong. Yeah, you never know. He's, he's pretty He's pretty savvy. Okay, so we're going to wrap up in a little bit. But before we do, I always like to make sure there's nothing that was really important that we missed. So as we were doing this, I'm sure you thought in your mind, these are the things I want to talk about. What haven't we talked about that was in your mind before we started? Yeah, for sure, man. I think what a lot of people didn't really get with Airbnb, you know, my old saying, you know, never say why, always ask how, is just how ridiculously obsessed they were about their idea. Russ from the book, Get Out of My Head, I got this from Sam, a good friend of ours. Russ explains it so well. He calls it delusional self-belief. Like you believe in your idea so much, even when everyone else tells you you're absolutely crazy, that you do whatever it takes to get there. And Paul Graham went as far as to call the Airbnb's founding team cockroaches because they just refused to die, regardless of what people said about their idea. And I think there's a lot we can take away. You know, like the Obama O's, where they literally were like in $30,000 of credit card debt. So they built like cereal boxes during the 2008-2009 election. And they literally sold these boxes for a lot of money on like the internet so that they can make money to keep the company going. (laughs) Like, why are you this crazy about it? They were so obsessed about their idea. Even some part of me is like, Jesus, like if they went that far, I better take my idea seriously. And there's something we can learn about this idea of persistence. You know, we always hear never give up. And I think they're probably the best, best example in the entire valley of companies that have went through Silicon Valley for startups. The only way to fail is to quit. That is the only way to fail. Now, failure has many faces and failure also doesn't have to be permanent. You could have temporary fail. You could have failures, but not be defeated. And you could pivot and you could make adjustments. And while you have might have some minor setbacks, some minor failures, you might and should realize that the bigger picture is to figure out what you can learn from the lessons taught through these challenging moments and getting to the finish line is about staying in the game. You don't get out until you are ready, right? And maybe that means that you're going to exit, you're going to sell the company, you're going to retire, any number of things that could happen. But if there's one thing that's a true trait amongst all successful entrepreneurs, it's grit, determination, and perseverance. Those things collectively are what it takes to get to where you need to go because it's not going to be a straight line. It's not going to be linear and path and it's not going to be just up and to the right. It's going to be, you know, zigzag down forwards, somersault and everything in between. (laughs) So now here we are 2021. We've just gone through arguably one of the most bizarre and extraordinary moments of history ever recorded. And it will be talked about, written about for years and years and years, not just from a health and well-being standpoint and all the obvious things that have happened to human life, but also to business. And the fact that Airbnb is still here today and still very, very successful. And I don't see how it can fail having gone through what it went through. I think there are some people who probably thought in the midst of everything happening, oh, Airbnb is toast. But now valuation, I think you said something like $90 billion. What's the future? Why are you so bought in? And you know, I'm not looking for your, you don't need to tell me you know, how much you're bought in, but I know you believe in this company and you're, you're willing to put your money where your mouth is. Why 
do you believe so much in the future of this company? Because we've talked about what's happened so far up until now, but what's going to happen going forward? Absolutely. No, it's always good for the record just to protect our asses a bit. This is not financial advice, people, just uh, two, two crazy people's opinion. So yeah, so, so the way that I think about this, Billy, is I think Brian's just getting started. And let me give you a quick example to compare. When we compare the competitive moat of an Airbnb versus an Uber, it's a lot bigger than you think. Because Uber is a regional moat, whereas Airbnb is a global moat. What do I mean by this? Explain moat for those who don't understand that conceptually. Thanks for that. Absolutely. So a moat is basically a competitive advantage and how deep that competitive advantage is. And a lot of people, when they look at Uber and they look at Airbnb, they generally go, oh, like, yeah, they're pretty much the same level of competitive moat or advantage. That's not true at all. It actually doesn't cost that much money to start a ride-sharing business. And that's why we see a lot of people, and there's a lot of companies, Turo being one of them, Lyft, Uber, and also in a lot of regions across the world. We're talking Grab. What is it? DD, right in China? There's a ton of them. There's a ton of them, There's a ton of them. And the reason is because the infrastructure cost to actually start one of these businesses is not as expensive. It's probably in the few millions of dollars, tens of millions maybe, which is not a lot in startup land. Okay, I know that sounds like a lot of money, but in startup land, it isn't. But Airbnb has a very different model, which is global infrastructure. And the reason this is so competitive and why it's very difficult to go up against somebody like Airbnb is because since there are hosts and homes across the whole world, somebody in Copenhagen, or rather, let's go New York, can't just start an Airbnb for people in New York because tourists who are visiting New York are not going to go to that website and go there. They'll just use Airbnb regardless. So it's really difficult for regional people to just build something. So you need a lot of money to build something as robust as Airbnb. And that's why we don't see a lot of competitors. That's the first thing. The second thing is most of the people who actually visit their tr- their website do so organically, which is super fascinating. They don't go there from an ad. Somebody else that they know, everybody knows somebody who has been in Airbnb. It's kind of crazy at this point if you don't know somebody. So the second you're on it, your lifetime value as a customer is pretty much a lot of money. Especially when you're young and you start to use the Airbnb, it'll start with like, okay, what's the cheapest thing? That's what I did when I went to Lewis's conference. Okay, what's the cheapest thing in Columbus? 30 bucks on a couch? Okay, I'll take that. But then as we get older and our income increases, right? True story. Now it's starting to turn into, okay, I could probably afford 100 bucks a day. Let's go to something a bit nicer, right? So our lifetime customer value increases. But since we're conditioned into Airbnb so young now, we don't really think of hotels unless we go to a conference and the hotel, the conference is at the hotel. Other right. than that, I would never use a hotel for the most part. And the third piece is where are we going from here? Right? With that competitive mode, where do I see the business going? A lot of people said that Airbnb did really badly in COVID. I don't actually agree with that. Did they do as, as good as 2019? Obviously not, right? Because travel went down. Or 2018, where they were profitable by 200 million. Right. But, but that's a different thing, right? So let me address that really quickly. Is Air, Companies like Airbnb, Billy, and Amazon did the same thing. They defer profits on purpose. They defer profits on purpose because they're going for the bigger play. Amazon's a great example of this. They weren't profitable until five years ago. And they've been in business since 1996. But the reason they defer the profits is so they don't have to pay taxes on it and so that they can reinvest it into the big machine. And that's what Airbnb has done. So I wouldn't look too much at the financial statements when we're looking at a high-growth tech startup. But the other piece, though, is even if Airbnb didn't do well, to your point, right in 2020 during COVID, the hotels did a lot worse. Mm. And the reason is because Airbnb doesn't have any real estate costs besides their own offices. They don't own all of these homes. You own the home. I own the home. Everyone else does. Hotels own their own real estate. The leases on those things all exploded. You cannot operate a hotel at 20% capacity because the lease is so expensive. Your staff is so expensive. No, you need to be 80, 90, 50, 60% capacity to even run a profitable business, not Airbnb. You could run at 1% capacity. You just need one person's home that I don't pay for, right? And then you rent it out to somebody else and I take it just a commission. 
so the hotels were in really deep shit during COVID. If so, I think Mar- Airbnb actually has a much bigger advantage coming out of COVID, and they're absolutely going to destroy the hotel business moving forward. Not to say that the hotel business won't exist anymore. I definitely think hotels will still be relevant, but the market will definitely shrink incrementally mm. over time. And Airbnb, VRBO, and companies like that, though I do think personally Airbnb will take most of the share for other reasons that we can talk about if you want, they're going to entirely dominate. I think Brian's just getting started. All the founders are still in their mid-30s. All the founders are still in the business. None of them have left. And a lot of their main executives are still working. And the executives who have left the company didn't even go to another company. Belinda left to take care of her kids because she's never seen them for 10 years. She wants work-life balance. So she just left work. And Joe's the day, the first employee they hired did the same thing. They didn't go to a competitor. So Mm. yeah, I think Airbnb is just getting started. Yeah. I mean, those are all solid points. Very well thought out. I completely agree, right? The 1% vacancy, they could have 99% vacancy and they would be just fine because it's they don't have any of the cost associated with it. Plus the long-term, you know, when you become a customer, like you're a customer at 25 and you're going to be using them for the next 50, 60, 70 years. Yeah. And the, you're in, you're in right now and you're not going anywhere. And the bottom line is when you think about a company like an Airbnb, as you said, the competitive moat that exists as a result of things like what you've just mentioned is it's awe inspiring, really, if you think about it, because it's not easy to do what they're doing relative to other entities and and companies that are out there. Therefore, sky's the limit to what they can do. So now that we know some of the reasons why you believe in this company, especially over the long term, in 30, 40 years, or even 20 years, you talked about incremental decrease in hotels. What are some other things, if you're going to polish your crystal ball and look into the future, what are some other things? Pick any time period that you want, but what would be interesting for the audience to learn about the big picture vision? Because right now, I mean, a lot of people use it. It's big now. How much bigger could it get? And what don't we know yet? If you're going to make any big, bold predictions, what what do we not know that, that you think might happen? Yeah. Fascinating question, man. And this is something I still think about to this day, and I don't have the best answer to it. Because even I ask myself a lot, how big can this business really get? Here's what I will say. Brian Chesky is by far one of the best visionary entrepreneurs I have seen in their 30s currently, right? Of course, you know, Jeff has done really well. He's in his 50s, right? We know he's amazing. I definitely think him, the founders of Stripe, the Collison brothers are good examples of Zucks. Zucks is just getting started too. People forget, like Mark Zuckerberg is like 35 years old. He's just getting started, right? These kids are just getting warmed up. But what I would say is on the topic of Brian, here's where I think Brian's going and what he was going to do, but he didn't because COVID hit, is I think he's going to try and buy an airline in the future because he wants to own travel. Because now he owns... After you get off the flight and as you book in and when you get back on the flight. But he wants to own the entire value chain. That's what I think his future is. But the problem with the airline business, it's a really tough business to be in. The margins are very low. You're always competing on price. And it's difficult to navigate that. Like the difference between United and American Airlines is minimal, right? It's it's the same. You're sitting on the same chair. It's price, right? So when we think about Airbnb as a business... There's a lot of things even I don't know. Like one interesting thing they did recently, they actually bought a Montreal startup where I'm from called Luxury Retreats. And Luxury Retreats was a high-end Airbnb website just for listings like for like $1,000 a day, like a castle-esque environment. And they mm-hmm. bought that. So they're getting into the higher-end market now. They started Airbnb experiences where you can go into cities and just, hey, like hang out with Billy for a day for 50 bucks and you'll show you around. Like that's the best experience because you've lived in the city, right? And I get to save 50 bucks, which is great. The other piece is Brian is still thinking about what are other ways in how we can own the value chain. So I'm predicting, to his point, I'm predicting they're probably going to buy an airline or create their own and redesign that too. I think that's Mm. another thing that's going to be interesting. It's ripe for disruption and It's another old industry that, to your point, has its share of problems. There have been some plays and, you know, private jets and this and that and all sorts of things 
But ultimately, it's still the same thing, right? As you're getting in an airplane going from point A to point B, and to your point, it's you're competing on price, right? I mean, yeah, of course, there's going to be outliers and, you know, oh, I really love Qantas because they gave me the best socks, right? Or something like that. But, and they've never gotten an accident. So fascinating. I can't wait to see what happens. Love this conversation. Anything we miss, brother, before we wrap up, I want to make sure I give you the final word, final thought, and then we'll wrap up. Final thought is innovation belongs to the crazy ones. And I think yes. Steve Jobs said it best. And if there's anything we can learn from Brian's story, I would say he's probably the best example of someone who looks normal, sounds normal, is an absolutely maniacally insane. And there's a lot we can learn from that. How can we be a bit more persistent in our ideas? How can we dive more into the edges of our brains and start brainstorming creative ways to delight our customer? And how do we use our, our childlike imagination, our creativity that most of us seem to lose as we grow up and maintain that for the rest of our lives? And I think Brian is probably the best example of someone who's kept his childlike curiosity, even after becoming a multi-billionaire. None of those three people need to work anymore. They all have billions of stock now in Airbnb <laughs> and they're still trumping. They're still working because there's a lot more left to do. And at the very, very least, if you didn't take one thing from this conversation, it's be customer centric. Think about the seven star experience. I love that. How do you wow your customers go above and beyond? As my old boss would say, how do you delight your customers and give them the type of experience that they want to tell their friends about? That's what this is all about. What a, what a great story. So glad that all of you all could be with us. Thanks for joining us. Also, check out Brendan's YouTube channel, Master Talk. Go subscribe immediately. He's got amazing videos on how to effectively communicate, be a stellar public speaker, and do the things necessary to communicate your ideas to change the world. With that, thanks, everyone. Appreciate you being here. Until next time, make it a great one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.